Hello and welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast where we break down the health tech news every single week. And this week I am joined by producer Adama, she's back, you'll all be grateful for that. Quality is going up this week everyone, do not fear. And also I have two wonderful guests, my colleague Jess, who is our PR lead here at SOMEX, and the amazing Bracey, who is VP at Ibis Capital and is leading the charge on their upcoming event, the Health Tech X Summit, which we are all very excited about. So welcome, Bracey, Jess and Adma. How are you doing? Thanks for having us. No worries. How are you doing, Jess? Um, I'm having a great week because I've spent the majority of the week in Morocco on holiday. So yeah, I can highly recommend only working two days in a week. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. The pictures look great. <laughs> and um, I haven't had quite as good a week as Jess, but still a very good week nonetheless. Um, working away in London, um, talking to some great health tech companies and spending most of my time prepping for our Health Tech X Summit on the 28th of Feb. Well, on that note, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Health Tech Summit and the work that you do at Ibis Capital? Tell us more. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll start with Ibis just quickly. So Ibis Capital is a, a boutique investment bank. Um, so we have a mission at Ibis to connect technology with capital across socially impactful sectors. Of course, healthcare is one of our core areas of focus and is incredibly socially impactful. And what we do within that sector is is threefold. So we advise companies who are looking to fundraise or who are looking to buy or sell other companies. We invest uh, and we are um, hosts of the Health Tech X Summit, where we bring together communities of uh, investors, companies, and other key stakeholders in the healthcare and technology spaces. Um, So that's IBIS Capital. The Health Tech X Summit this year is on the 28th of February. Our thematic focus for the event is the future of chronic care. And as everyone who's sitting here and who probably listens to this podcast knows, chronic diseases are one of the primary drivers of spend and of physician time in healthcare across the globe. And so what we're looking at is those technologies, some of which we'll touch on today, that help to drive efficiencies, to improve outcomes, and to improve quality of life for patients who suffer from these conditions, which unfortunately is upwards of half of the population. Awesome. Well, we've got quite a lot to talk about on chronic care this week, and that probably brings us very nicely to our first story, which is very relevant, talking to you know someone who exists in, uh, in the investment world, because we're going to be talking about a raise. We love talking about raises. It's a it's a hard it's a hard time out there for anyone raising money. So it's always good to celebrate those. But this story comes to us from Forbes, and it is about a health tech company called Mesh Bio, based in Singapore, that are developing digital twins for chronic disease, and they've raised a strong three point five million to tackle that problem. Now. I'm going to say it because it's Friday, but it feels like a little bit of a freaky Friday in health tech with digital twins. So, Bracey, what are they doing and how are they doing it? Yeah, happy to comment on that. So, MeshBio has a product called the Dara Health Intelligence Platform. And from what I can tell from having a look at their website and reading some of their materials, it looks like it's a clever clinical decision support tool, which is designed to address a really significant and and frankly, undermet 
need, which is the support of patients with chronic conditions like cardiovascular diseases. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that makes this company interesting is, of course, when you have these CDS or clinical decision support tools, you have to train them on data. And a lot of the clinical decision support tools, which are provided by some of the larger global companies, are likely trained on Western data sets. That's a problem that faces healthcare in almost any space from pharma through tech solutions. And so to have a, a solution which is specific to Southeast Asia, is very valuable. And the idea is that if you roll this out across clinics, then you can improve the efficiency and uh, the consistency in the way that these patients are being treated. So I think it's a really interesting product. It's a software product, which from an investor perspective, investors love software, recurring revenues. Um, it's very interesting. And what I think is interesting about this in particular is the use of that word digital twin. And I'd love to have uh, your opinion on this because I think digital twin is a little bit buzzwordy. It's a clinical decision support tool. I think that's valuable. Um, when I hear of digital twin, I, I think about the utility of digital twins and things like clinical trials uh, to form, you know, better sort of test groups so that patients can receive the test compounds or treatment. The use of the word digital twin in this context I'm, I'm not entirely sure um, how it translates into what the actual product is, um, but I think it's an exciting raise. It's early days, um, but if they can roll this out across the regions that they're targeting, Indonesia and Philippines, then I'll certainly be keeping an eye on it. Yeah, I agree that maybe the use of the word digital twin was something of a, a headline grabbing mechanism rather than a completely accurate description of um, what the product does. And well, I'm somebody with a real life human identical twin. Um, so I was quite intrigued to see um, what the digital version of my, my twin might look like. But yeah, it seems to be that they'll be using all of the, the data that they're um, collecting from patients and using those to kind of suggest like the personalized treatment options, which I think is interesting because we do, we have talked a lot before on this podcast about what are the, some of the best ways that we can utilize or leverage some of the vast quantities of lifestyle and health data that we are now able to collect from people. Um, so this seems like um, an interesting use case for that. Um, but yeah, um, I think my real human twin will not be replaced by this digital version anytime soon. When I see tools like this and when I speak to companies that are doing things like this that are designed to add efficiencies to the healthcare system, I think it's really important to dig in how into how that is actually happening and what the actual physician experience of that is. Do physicians already collect all of the data that needs to be input into this software to spit out the response that's useful to them? Or does it actually require more work from the physician side, in which case implementation will be difficult? I don't know the answers to that. I haven't spoken to the company directly, but I think these are the types of questions that intelligent investors are asking when you think about these types of products. And of course, they're the types of questions that founders and management teams need to be thinking about as they design their products and bring them to customers in the real world. Yeah, I think that's two really good points there. Multiple really good points, but but two that I just want to touch on. And the first is what you're saying there about, um, you know, how I guess it feeds into the clinician experience. And I was at a roundtable last night with Health Excel, and we were talking about the history, <laughs> the history. It's not long, but the history of digital health and the lessons that we can learn from successes and failures. And, and one thing that really came out was around implementation and 
companies and health systems, all stakeholders, I guess, around the table really underestimating just how difficult that implementation piece is. And when you consider like, as you were saying, is that data that clinicians are already collecting or is it additional information that they're going to have to find? But not just that, is that extra time they're going to have to spend there for even if it's data they already have, implementing that into a new system and a new process? Or is it easy to embed into an existing process that where they're just it, it's just the one single time that they're implementing that information? And that is that can be the difference between success and failure of so many different types of solutions that it does it can get overlooked because you 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 start with a problem and you think you found a solution, but it's that piece in the middle that has to be thought through so carefully and and worked through with the people who are who are living that. You know, what are the keystrokes they're doing? What are the the programs they're having to click on? How many programs they're having to click on? Where are they pulling that information? And and having that really visceral understanding so that actually you're not increasing workload uh, in a way that you aren't realizing when you're trying to decrease the workload. Um, I think it's super interesting and something that, yeah, is definitely overlooked. And and actually, I think it was an investor raised the point that when they're looking at companies, not only are companies overlooking practically what it takes in terms of what they need to do to support that implementation and truly understand it, but when they're putting together um, their forecast, they aren't accounting for the actual amount of money that it's going to cost them to do that either, which means that then they fall short. Once they've raised that money, they don't actually have the money to do that implementation piece either. So not only has a, the thinking not been done, but the 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 budget isn't there to be able to kind of see it through. And I think it's great, as you say, that it, you know the smart investors are asking those questions to make sure that it's not an oversight or an afterthought because it's such a critical piece to creating impact and, you know, for investors getting return on any, you know, capital that they, they do deploy. Um, so I think that's super important. And then the other, the other point that I wanted to talk a little bit more about was, was language around digital twin. And as you were describing there, what this actually is, which sounds like a clinical decision support tool, that does not strike me as a digital twin, as I would know or recognize it. But I don't think that I think potentially, you know, there's there could be some misunderstanding um, and but there also could be something about it being valuable as a, a grabbing headline. But I think because health tech is so new, there's still such ambiguity around the language that we use. So when we think about things like digital biomarkers, digital therapeutics, there there isn't any defined explanations for how we actually categorize some of these things and you're right they do just become buzzwords like ai is now meaningless because everything's ai everything uses ai um and you know there's so many different examples of that where we just don't have that clarity and so it's really difficult to compare like for like against different types of solutions and and in some ways even to understand where they fit and how they work because you know, again, virtual wards. We talk about virtual wards working and not working, but the way that even in the UK, like one healthcare organisation defines a virtual ward is very different to another, which, and therefore implementation looks totally different. 
the results look totally different. And so you can't, it's like judging apples and pears. It's not, it's not the same. Uh, so I think it's also always really hard to figure out exactly where things fit because we don't have anyone who's like, no, this is what it actually means to use this language or this terminology. Um, and even it, like, you know, looking to regulators and all that sort of thing, it, that, that's not even a place where we can go to to try and find that information yet because I think they're still trying to figure that out and, and haven't also figured out how to regulate some of this stuff. So it's a tricky one. Um, but I think that is something that will perhaps come as we mature as an industry. Um, I think it kind of has to in order to kind of gain the trust from, you know, scientific trust, validity, credibility. Um, so we know and understand the technologies we're looking at and the data we're looking at as well. So hmm, it's an interesting time. Maybe, maybe we need a health tech dictionary someone needs to stand up and write write the dictionary um and then we just use it as a rule book that we all play by just so that we have something to, to work from so moving on to our next story and it is another one from forbes but very different kind of company this time so this one is about amazon embarking on a mission to tackle chronic diseases. Now, sounds like a very important problem to solve. As Bracey said earlier, it is one of the biggest healthcare challenges we have. 50% of people, at least 50% of people in the US have a chronic condition and 40% have more than one chronic condition. And that's just the US. We know that, you know, that is a, it's a global issue. We also know that reporting is really variable for for chronic diseases and how different countries even categorize it. And again, a conversation that I was eavesdropping on last night, they were talking about dementia and Alzheimer's and how in some Asian communities, uh, Alzheimer's and dementia is not considered real and therefore is underdiagnosed and underreported. So these people exist with those conditions, but the data doesn't show that they actually have that condition. So it's really hard to actually understand how pervasive chronic conditions in the broad, in the broad are. Um, I thought that was really interesting, just that nuance around reporting and how we understand it. But back to Amazon, they're going to tackle the problem. It needs, it needs tackling. My big question is lots of big tech companies have tried to move into healthcare and make waves in healthcare. Amazon is one of them. They've been there before and they have never quite cracked it. But could this be the time that they do? Bracey, Jess, what do you think? Does does this have legs? I guess when I read this headline, it excites me for a couple of reasons um, that are less about the impact of these decisions on Amazon and more about the impact of these decisions on the digital health companies, the health tech companies that Amazon has chosen to partner with. And so I think that this is a less impactful decision for Amazon than it is for players like Omada Health, who they've partnered with to help roll out some of these digital programs to help reach more patients. Um, let's just say that we're going to call all this digital therapeutics. Um, despite the challenges we've all just described in terms of definitions. Um, 
there's been some really high profile failures in the digital therapeutic space. And, and frankly, a lot of it boils down to how do you actually access patients with these therapeutics that have in many cases been proven to work in clinical trials and companies by themselves you know, broadly speaking, haven't quite cracked that. And there's some that are doing it on a, a little bit of scale, but there's no big companies that have rolled this out. And I think that looking at this partnership and, you know, the article uses a phrase that's something like meeting patients where they are, which in this case is online. Um, everyone's online nowadays. And so if you can meet those patients where they are with these programs that work, then that can be really interesting. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of these programs are for things like lifestyle change. And when you start to think about adding lifestyle change into the mix, to me, that's where it gets tricky because lifestyle change is, you know, arguably the treatment that is the hardest to implement. You know, people who lose weight, for example, don't keep it off. Lifestyle change is incredibly challenging with or without a digital therapeutic um, to treat conditions with. And and then the article starts to bring that concept of lifestyle change into the preventative space, which I think then is a whole host of other problems connected to um, prevention versus treatment. And we'd love to talk a little bit more about that. Um, but I guess, you know, my in summary, I think I really don't think this is going to be a game changer for Amazon. I think it may be a game changer for companies like Omada Health, who now have this huge channel to the consumers that they're trying to reach with with their product. Yeah, I really like how um, the author Rita Numeroff ends this article, um, which is just by kind of sharing her opinion that she doesn't think that this new initiative by Amazon is going to be a solution that kind of cures all of the the problems in America. For example, the fact that 25% of Americans have skipped or postponed getting care, required care in the past year, which is quite a shocking statistic. Um, but she, she does think that it's just a successful example of the kind of innovation and disruption that the healthcare sector really needs in America. Um, and she kind of calls on the leaders of traditional healthcare delivery organizations to kind of pay attention to this. Um, and kind of explore alternatives to the traditional models which aren't working and just be brave enough to try something fundamentally different. Um, so yeah, I really like how she's um, kind of looked at this new development from that perspective and from that line and used it as a bit of a, a call to action to these leaders of the, the big healthcare organisations in the US. Yeah, Justin, I totally agree with that. And I think what what is quite interesting about this is, and is something I've been thinking about a lot this week, is the concept of responsibility in healthcare. So, you know, if you think about chronic conditions and the treatment and prevention of those chronic conditions, whose responsibility is it? Is it the, the healthcare provider's responsibility to make sure patients have access to care? Is it the government's responsibility? Do we need policies that help this come into the fore and to be improved? Is it an individual responsibility? You know, do consumer and, and, you know, this, this dynamic between these digital health companies and Amazon sort of pushes this into the consumer responsibility uh, to take, to take health into their own hands, to think about the prevention of chronic conditions. And therefore, you know, you're kind of putting the population health into the hands of the population. 
I think that the answer is a mixture of all of those. But the truth is, I think no one is really taking that responsibility now. And one of the really interesting comments in this article, I think, is around the sort of perverse incentivization in the US with the fee for service model that exists. And so, you know, these healthcare systems are incentivized to do more tests and to refer to specialists and all of this. And they're not necessarily incentivized to try to get patients to take control with a a digital solution, for example. You know, if you think about the UK, um, on the other hand, I was speaking to an investor this week um, who was talking about something he'd heard a, a senior NHS representative say, which was, you know, thinking about prevention in the NHS is like tending to the garden when the house is on fire. And so, you know, that takes that responsibility firmly out of the NHS and to somebody else, consumers, um, social care, uh, policymakers, schools, I don't know. But um, I think that this is a step in the right direction with one of those stakeholders. It remains to be seen how big that step might actually be um, as a result. Yeah, people often say that where the NHS is concerned here in the UK, uh, it's great if you're dying. Um, But if you're not, you probably are better off looking elsewhere if you can. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right. That idea about responsibility is is really tricky because the incentives aren't there for anybody else to step forward, particularly because the payback is long-term, not short-term. And I think the world that we exist in at the moment, everyone, I use that term broadly, everyone is looking for a short-term fix. We do need short-term fixes because we have short-term problems that are significant. But I guess that the issue with, with the going down the preventative route and really leaning into that is that you have to really commit for the long term. And I think that companies struggle to do that, whether it's companies, organizations, they struggle to do that. And I think that, you know, in healthcare, we talk about investment, you know, definitely being a long term play rather than a short term play. And I, I think that that is broadly understood, perhaps in that space. But even so, not to the extent that it needs to be to be to be able to see some of these preventative solutions really come through and, and make that impact. And I think you make such interesting points. And so does the article around, you know, that this inverse incentive that, you know, really is not is not working in favor of anyone in the system because ultimately it's it's not serving patients in the long term and it's not serving health in the long term. And unfortunately for that to change, that is a huge, that's a seismic transformation in policy that has to take place. And how much of a priority is that for governments and decision makers and policy makers right now? I don't, I don't, I honestly don't know the answer to that, but I also think that it feels like such a big thing to tackle that maybe people making those decisions feel more comfortable making smaller changes that feel more manageable, um, that they are going to be able to see more payback in the shorter to medium term than the long term. Um, I really don't know, but I, I I don't know what the what the switch is that has to be flipped in order to to make that change where we see you know, incentivization for prevention and for outcomes rather than diagnostics and procedures. 
And and again, like, and maybe that isn't going to happen for for you know like us here in the UK with the NHS where we have a free at point of service healthcare system. Maybe that should just be for the sickest people in the you know emergency situations. Maybe there is a secondary system that needs to be set up that can support prevention in a more robust way. And and you know, arguably maybe maybe that's what you know primary care could could do. But equally it's that's still, you know, a a part of healthcare that's also on its knees, you know, no one no one's immune from it. So yeah, I just don't know what it is that's gonna flip the switch. Okay, our final story of the week, and it's one we have been following for a little while. And I should also call out, we haven't intentionally just talked about the two wealthiest men in the world and their companies. Usually, I'm all for talking about women's health, women doing amazing things. These two stories, I think we we couldn't miss. And well, it's Elon Musk's Neuralink. It has finally implanted its first chip in a human brain. And it is really, for me, healthcare black mirror IRL. It's happening in real life, but it, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. It makes me feel a bit funny. Uh, it feels like something out of the Matrix. Yeah, it's just making me feel very uncomfortable. I'm sure it's an amazing thing. And I know that there was a lot of resistance for... Uh, you know, for, there was a lot of resistance towards this kind of technology. Um, and I know that it's something that he he's wanted to do for a long time. So it's a huge step that this has finally been put in a human brain. And, you know, there's also something amusing as there are with all the names of uh, Elon's companies and products with the fact that it's called telepathy. But is anyone else feeling as queasy as I do reading this story? Uh, we've definitely gone with the sci-fi theme yeah. today's episode, haven't we? We've gone from digital twins to brain implants. Yeah, I'm sure most of the podcast listeners will have read about this on social media or in the news. It seems to kind of have been everywhere over the past week. And I think one of the reasons why it's been everywhere is because Elon Musk has kind of revealed so little about the actual details of um, how this technology works, or what exactly it's going to be used for. So there has been a lot of speculation ranging from like the sublime to the ridiculous. I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more about what the details of the technology are going to be. But until then, I am quite enjoying all of the, the speculation and the crazy ideas about exactly what we're going to be able to do once inevitably we all have these um, chips implanted in our brains in, what, three, four years time, I imagine. Oh, God, don't, Jess. That's scary. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, my reaction to this, and again, something that, you know, it doesn't just take the health tech community to follow this one. Everyone's following this one. Everyone follows everything that Elon does, um, some of which is completely crazy, um, some of which is exciting, and some of which is um, on the verge of scary. Um, and, you know, everyone has their opinions on where this one falls. I think, I mean, in my personal opinion, I think that the goal here is is one of his more valiant. And so, you know, it's curing blindness and it's letting quadriplegics walk again. You know, no one thinks that's a bad goal. Personally, I think that it's a, a sort of more valiant goal than making humans a multi-planetary species, um, in, in my personal opinion. But that might be because I'm more interested in healthcare than I am in space travel. But I think, 
you know, we're still a, a long way off. The only sort of coming from a scientific background, I was sort of trying to find any science in this article. And all I can find is, quote, promising neuron spike detection. And, you know, to me, that's quite uh, far from letting quadriplegics walk or blind people see or um, people like Stephen Hawking speak in a, in, a, in a normal way or write in a normal way. Um, and so I think that, you know, we're a long way off. I guess my final point is I just can't imagine in a world where there are things like wrist-based blood pressure monitors, the FDA is approving this and not that. Um, and so, I mean, we'll see what he does. Um, but I think right now we're, we're still a ways off and we know that Elon has, um, let's say been overly optimistic on timelines in the past. And so uh, I'm not sure the same won't apply here. I think you're so right. I think it really is, you know, a, a valiant cause if we are able to get to the point where it, it does solve those huge issues. However, well, I still feel queasy first and foremost, but I feel more comfortable that Elon isn't trying to turn us all into cyborgs. I, in the article, it says the person is recovering well. I want the details. First of all, I want to know how much they got paid to do it. I want to know more about the procedure. I want to know where in their brain it went. I want a sit-down interview with them. I want to know that they are living and breathing and I want to have a conversation with them. As I'm sure lots of people do. But I want to I want to understand their experience of that and what recovering well looks like. And part of the reason I say that is because I don't know if anyone's seen Bad Surgeon on Netflix, which is about uh, an Italian surgeon who essentially went rogue and claimed that he could replace people's windpipe with a plastic tube and then and then would essentially would be able to rebuild it by covering it in stem cells. And it's essentially a modern day healthcare horror story. It was based on um, falsified data from research that never happened. There had been no animal testing and he basically was removing people's windpipes and then putting this tube in and like proclaiming it to be like, it's going to be a miracle. And then he was saying that people were recovering well. And I think like one person of about 14 survived. So it's giving me that vibe. However, I guess it's also difficult because Elon is not, he's not a doctor. He's not a biology expert. Maybe he is. He's probably more of a biology expert than I am. And of course, he has experienced teams around him, but we're only hearing from Elon. And so I would love to hear from experts who believe in this and can kind of paint that picture of the journey from where we are now, where it's been implanted in one person and it's showed this neurological spike to where we get to a point where it is allowing people to get their sight back, where it's allowing quadriplegics to walk again and move and people who have lost their speech to speak and all of those kinds of things. At the moment, it just sounds like another Netflix documentary that I probably do want to watch, but don't want to watch. But I don't want to finish on a negative. It is exciting because if it has the potential to truly change people's lives in that way, then, you know, of course we should be exploring that. But you're right. There, there's something interesting about the fact that, you know, why there are things that seem so obvious that should have approval that don't yet have approval. Um 
But I think we there are those questions flying around all the time uh, where, you know, big tech companies are concerned, very wealthy people are concerned, um, and smaller companies doing innovative and impactful things that maybe have a little bit more of a hard time. Not suggesting there's any conspiracy. I'm not saying that at all. But there are always questions to be asked on that side of things. Um, but hopefully it's going to change the world and change lives. So Elon, just please tell us the truth. Keep us posted. I mean, yeah, Jess, I hate to burst your bubble here, but I can. I would put money on the fact that this trial subject has been bound by a mountain of NDAs and probably has lawyers watching them 24-7. So I'm not sure that you're going to get that exclusive interview that you you're You mean to say after. they're not going to be live... I can't even say tweeting now. What what is it on Twitter? Live Xing? That sounds that sounds really dodgy. Anyway, they're not going to be live reporting on X their entire their entire experience. I mean, that would be very Elon style. But I think you're probably right, Jess. I think we're not going to hear for a while. Yeah. I mean, that could be um, Elon's secret. Could be Elon's secret way to revive the fortunes yeah. of X. Um, that would be one way to get a lot of people back back onto the platform who've been fleeing it is to have this trial subject um, reporting their recovery daily basis and whatever special superpowers they've acquired from having this chip implanted in their brain. Yeah, X-Men, hey? Like real-life X-Men. Well, Elon can have that suggestion from us for free. Because let's face it, it probably is a man. We wouldn't want any clinical research to be done on women. That would be absolutely ridiculous, wouldn't it? Exactly. We've, we've had more than our fair share. Well, on that note, on that note... We will wrap up our sci-fi edition of Health Tech Pigeon. Uh, Pigeon will not be flying into space anytime soon. It will be firmly staying below the clouds. No implants will be put into Pigeon's brain. Certainly not within the next week anyway. But thank you so much to Bracey for joining us. Please can you let our guests know how they can access a ticket to come along to the Health Tech X Summit, which of course they will all want to do because it's going to be fantastic. Yes, absolutely. We'd love to invite the Health Tech Pigeon audience to join us at Hurlingham Club in London on the 28th of February for the Health Tech X Summit focused on the future of chronic care. We'll make sure that there is a link to register for tickets to look at our amazing speaker lineup, including Dame Jessica Ennis-Hill, um, as well as our other wonderful speakers. Um, link in the show notes and uh, we might be able to just drop a little discount code in there as well um, so hope to see uh, I know I'll be seeing you there Jess um, and hope to see uh, more of the audience there you will definitely be seeing me there and many others too I'm sure I'm looking forward to it well thank you Bracey thank you Jess and of course thank you Adama for keeping us on track we will see you all next week with some more health tech news